Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, yesterday was National Adopt-A-Shelter Pet Day. Um, constituent Derek sent this to me, and uh, this is a tie I forgot to wear yesterday, but his grandmother and his mom made the tie. Uh, our daughter Anna and her husband Jeb adopted a shelter dog a couple years ago, a Springer Spaniel uh, by the name of Copper. And so Copper's a, Copper's a great dog, and... Uh, we enjoy, we enjoy copper a lot. Today I'm wearing a Wittenberg tie. Uh, Lance Himes, uh, Chief of Staff of the Department of Health, uh, is a graduate, proud graduate uh, of Wittenberg. And football star Joe Dieters, Hamilton County Prosecuting Attorney, he also is a graduate. Uh, so go Wittenberg Tigers. Today also wraps up Ohio's first official celebration uh, of Native Plant Month. Last July, I signed House Bill 59 into law designating April as Ohio Native Plant Month. And Ohio became one of the first states in the nation to designate an entire month to our native plants. Uh, there are nearly 2,000 different species of native plants here in Ohio. These plants provide a necessary food source for native bees, butterflies, birds, and other wildlife. In fact, Fran has a, a butterfly, a little butterfly garden. Uh, they support our pollinators that are critical in fruit and vegetable production. So as you begin your spring gardening, I encourage you to fill your gardens with Ohio's native plants. Uh, they're truly special and worth celebrating in April and all throughout the year. Uh, you'll see pictures in the video uh, that's going to come up here in a moment uh, of some great things. Uh, also included towards the end is the Lakeside Daisy. Our son John many years ago worked for a summer uh, for Guy Denny at the Ohio Department of Natural Resources in the Natural Areas Division. Uh, and John was a part of the conservation effort for the Lakeside Daisies. Uh, so let's take a look at these. Well, they're up there. Yesterday, I reported on the 4.1 million pieces of personal protection equipment, PPE, that have been sent out to local EMAs across Ohio uh, just last week. Uh, today, I want to talk about another place we're directing these much-needed supplies. Uh, when it comes to the distribution of PPE, you've heard us talk about sending it where we know it's most needed, uh, nursing homes and other places. One of those places is, of course, uh, our correction facilities. Our correction officers and our others staffing our state prisons are really 
on the front line uh, every single day, and we appreciate very, very much their, their work. Uh, we want to do everything that we can to keep them safe. Over the last few weeks, uh, we've delivered to the prisons more than 1.1 million pieces of PPE, 108,000 N95 masks, 256,000 gloves, 684 procedure masks, 10,000 provider gowns, and 10,000 cloth masks for the inmates. Uh, that totals 1.1 million pieces of equipment that are vital to the safety of our rehab and correction staff and the prisoners that they guard. Um, our goal is to keep a 90-day supply of the most critical equipment, uh, and these allocations coupled with what DRC has on, ha has on hand are helping to achieve that. Again, uh, as we work with the personal protection equipment, um, our team is working very, very hard uh, to make sure our first responders, people who work in hospitals, uh, people who work in nursing homes uh, are provided with what they need. And it's been a, a challenge because of the distribution of a, some of the supply chains because of the pandemic. Uh, a lot of this uh, does, in fact, come out of China. But uh, our team will continue to do that because it's very, very important uh, to make sure every Ohioan who needs this equipment uh, does, in fact, have it. Uh, as we talked about yesterday, uh, we have our Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections Director, Annette Chambers-Smith, with us today on Skype uh, to give an update on prisons. Director, thank you for joining us and joining her, uh, as looks like six feet apart there, uh, is Dr. Michael Para, who is Professor Emeritus in Infectious Diseases at The Ohio State University College of Medicine with over 40 years of experience in medicine. Uh, so I'm glad to see both of you there. And Director, why don't you start by uh, kind of giving uh, the people of Ohio a report on what you're doing uh, to keep staff safe uh, and prisoners safe as well during this very, very uh, difficult time. Director? Well, uh, I certainly want to thank people for getting us and for making sure that we have things that we need for this disease. I, uh, those of you may not know that we had a pandemic plan for H1N1 long before we ever had this flu. Uh, COVID is not when we started planning. We started planning in 2009 with H1N1. And ironically, I was the health authority for the department during H1N1. And it was during my time, my, my years as the health authority that we created the pandemic plan to begin with. Little did I know, flash forward to 2020, we would be dusting it off and implementing it as well as uh, changing it with the shifting science of COVID-19. So I guess my point behind that was we didn't just start in February or January. We started quite some time ago. We have practiced our pandemic plan in the past and we knew how we were gonna start with this. Every institution has its own plan that's tailored to its physical plant. And when COVID-19 started, we did ask every facility to update that old pandemic plan to make sure that it accounted for what we knew about COVID-19 at, at the time. 
because we know a lot of different information now than we did then, and that we were uh, making it fit the current physical plant, et cetera. So we did tabletop exercises in February. We did um, begin to try to procure, procure PPE. We put a commodities strike force in place just to make sure that what PPE we had was appropriately shared until we could get some in. We realized quickly we weren't going to be able to buy it in any kind of uh, quick fashion, so we decided that we would start making it. And uh, the penal industries started making hand sanitizer, face shields, and also um, like a surgical mask, as well as the tailor shops and all the prisons did begin to make PPE for the people who live in the prisons. There were several different means, not just the statewide PPE task force, which has been fabulous, but also our own internal commodities team. We also did things like changing our policies. Um, We normally don't allow hand sanitizer with um, alcohol, for example. We normally don't allow a certain types of wipes with chemicals in them. It's just different in a prison environment. So little things like that were waived or changed so that we could make sure we had the policies necessary that were going to support um, this pandemic as well. We think of it as layering. Uh, We did, we're like the second prison in the nation to stop accepting visitors. When we did that, everyone thought we were excessive and and moving too fast, but we knew we needed to try to keep COVID out of the prisons because once it came in, uh, we would have very little success with stopping it. So a lot of our plans were around uh, preparing and trying to keep it out as long as possible. We were able to keep COVID out of the prisons until Um, the main surge in the free world happened so that our surge and Ohio surge happened slightly different timing, which is good so that we were able to all have the services that we needed of the hospitals in the various zones. There's a lot of different things that have gone on from masking to gloving. Um, We were already in flu season, so we had a cleaning teams already operating and had already offered the flu vaccine to our population and, and to our staff. However, with COVID, we knew that it was going to be important to make sure the types of chemicals we were using actually killed COVID. So we did check with the CDC and EPA on that. And we knew exactly what chemicals of all those chemicals we normally use would kill COVID. So we narrowed down to just using those chemicals. We uh, stopped people from moving from prison to prison. We stopped doing, um, I will never call it an elective procedure, but a procedure that could be delayed medically. We changed how we provided programming, how many people were allowed to be together. We began to cohort the people who lived in the prison into their housing units like a little family. Uh, And then we eventually started cohorting staff. And every time we have done a contact tracing, we go back to what we've done and say, okay, is is there anything we can do better? The CDC has visited one of our prisons to provide advice to us. Um, And also we get the help of an environmental health physician who he, he works for OSU. His name's Dr. Weir. I think you had him on already. He looks at our plans around social distancing and movement and how we handle our um, HVAC systems. There's literally not no part of the prison system that hasn't been touched by what we're doing to try to deal with this pandemic. So that's been going on since February. I think all of those things like changing how much fresh air comes in with the 
with the HVAC system or the filtering or ordering different supplies to try to um, clean the air. It's, it's a lot of different things going on. And I think a lot of staff pouring a lot of time into it. I, our staff are working double shifts um, as we have people that are ill. We've gotten help from the National Guard uh, because we need to uh, replace the people that aren't able to work. And the National Guard does bring people into us to help us do our, um, our checks on people in a prison. It only takes one person being positive, either a staff member or an incarcerated adult. If we get even one person, we put them on a different status that we call red. And at that point, we take signs and symptoms and temperatures of every single inmate every day. In those prisons where we have short staff, the um, National Guard helps us do that. Uh, we also use the highway patrol to do perimeter patrol at several of our prisons, and that allows us to bring our staff inside and make sure that we can work safely. Literally, from the Highway Department of Health, the OSP, OSU, the National Guard are all working together for the betterment of the people that are living in the prison and to make sure that we can take care of our environment. Um, there, definitely, it's a, it's a team. It's a team, and it's been refreshing because I don't think all of my peers enjoy such support. Um, we are trying to leverage the best science as soon as we find out about it. So, for example, we started staff screening in March 11th, which consisted of asking the questions that the CDC recommended at that time, signs, symptoms, travel, et cetera, and taking temperatures. So we started doing that then, and I think we're on version eight of that intake form for our staff because the CDC has literally uh, changed that recommendation based upon science coming out and further information. So we keep up with that. Um, this is really a collaboration and our physicians do collaborate with doctors across different disciplines to come up with our overarching plan. Uh, I asked Dr. Perry to be here today actually to kind of talk about our testing strategy, as you know, we were the first state to do mass testing anywhere. We did mass testing at three facilities. We tested every single person that lives there. And by Friday, we'll have tested every single person that works there that wanted to be tested. And we learned some valuable information that is helping us build our plan moving forward of how we would do testing. Dr. Parrott, did you want to talk, speak to that? Uh, thank you. Thank you for asking um, me to look at the uh, plan. I, I have to say, Governor, that I, I've been overwhelmingly impressed with the director. I, um, the fact that she knows so much about this, I guess it's because she was the health authority for the, for the system, and her assistant was the health authority as well. And so they're very familiar with this, and they really know what they're doing and, under, and, and honestly understand uh, how to approach it in this environment. And as you've heard, she did this with the um, swine flu where she helped develop this plan. And, th and this is just, you know, we've learned more. It's a, it is a new virus, uh, but still uh, infection control is infection control of respiratory agent. And so she's very familiar with them. And I think, I, I think you're lucky. I think the, the, the system is very lucky to have her um, because I have been I've been very impressed with this. Uh, I've talked to the uh, medical director about some of these situations, and uh, he seems to be very familiar as well with it. And so, I mean, just I have I've been studying uh, infectious disease and viruses for forty years, and and have recently come up. 
come on with the uh, COVID effort at the university. And so start looking through things. And, and you mentioned the, the testing uh, at the Marion facility. And I think that was, that was a critical step because we learned so much from that. Uh, you know, approximately 80% of people uh, were positive. Some went to the hospital, but what was most amazing, and I think this is kind of national news, literally, is how many people were positive and had no symptoms at all and were feeling fine. What does that mean? That means that if they let a lawyer in or send a, an inmate to the court, they could run into somebody who had absolutely no symptoms at all and have it. And so um, one of the issues that, that, that I was asked to look at was, should we test everybody in the system? Well, testing everybody in the system helps today. But if somebody goes to court or uh, a lawyer comes in tomorrow, they can bring it in all over again. And so the scheme that she has to, to monitor people, anybody that's sick gets tested, anybody that's sick and is, and is uh, tested goes to the infirmary, they're tested for uh, the virus there. If they're sicker, they go to the hospital. If they're not sicker, they stay in that, in that infirmary. And everybody, as you just heard, everybody in the prison gets, gets uh, tested every day for fevers or symptoms. And if, again, anybody who gets sick gets moved out. So I think it's a very, uh, a, a very good system. As you've just heard, uh, Dr. Weir made some suggestions on changing the physical plant. They've educated the, the inmates about this. They've offered them masks if they want to wear them. They're making the masks. Um, they participate with the governor in the early release program. Um, they do contact tracing. I, I don't, there's really very little else I could suggest. I mean, honestly, she's thought of a lot of things and uh, talked to a lot of individuals and really have, has done a lot. I, you know, there's, one can't deny it's a closed environment. Uh, but, but she has cohorted these environment units. I was impressed with this. She cohorts units and the guards are assigned to a unit the wardens assigned to a unit, they don't really communicate with a lot of other people. Um, and so that, that is cohorting in, in, in one aspect. So um, I don't know what else I can address, Director. You really am impressed. Thank you. I appreciate that. I did not pay him. Um, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> the university pays me. No, <laughs> you really are. I, I am overwhelmed, actually the thoroughness of what you've uh, done. Director, I wonder so, if you can ad address a little bit, uh, and, and also, Doctor, uh, we had this, uh, we've had this discussion, uh, had a discussion this morning. Um, you know, we tested, uh, I guess, virtually everybody in Marion, uh, but the idea, uh, Doctor, you raised the idea, you know, do you, is it, does it make sense to test everybody in the whole prison system, 48,000 people? Um, and you, you all gave me an answer to that question that I asked this morning, but I wonder if you want to discuss that a little bit and explain to the public uh, what, what the procedure really should be in regard to testing the protocol should be. And that's e either one of you, director, or, you, you know, either one of you want to start. You, you want me to start, doctor? Go ahead. 
So the reason we tested everyone in those facilities is because Marion Correctional Institution has a significant number of people that are older with comorbidities. Uh, Franklin Medical Center is actually a, sort of a prison hospital. It's a step down from a hospital, but not quite like as if you were at home. And then Pickaway Correctional Institution has a 68-person dialysis unit as well as a long-term care facility with the prison wrapped around it. So those were three populations that were very vulnerable where we had some amount of COVID and wanted to test to see if we could find the people who were asymptomatic and positive and then separate them physically from everyone else. When we got the results back from Marion, there were so many people who were asymptomatic and positive. We knew that everyone who lived in that prison and had exposure and the, the separation wasn't going to work. So had we got what we thought we would get when we had our original hypothesis to test everyone, which was a discrete number of people in the prison who were positive and asymptomatic that we could move out. We were getting ready to open up another prison and move those people in there so that they couldn't infect anyone else. That was our idea. But the science told us something different. There's way more people that are asymptomatic and positive than any of us really ever dreamed, actually. And so then the clinicians looked at, okay, here's what we found. We're going to retest the negative people and see if those people in those mass tested facilities turn positive, which we have started doing already, and some of them have. With this type of information, the decision was made to do spot and sample testing as ordered by the clinicians, testing of people who have signs and symptoms, uh, testing of people who are being released, and sampling and surveillance as ordered by the medical director. And what our hope is here is that we take care of the people who are sick because we found so many people who are symptomatic that have literally nothing wrong with them. We check their temperatures and do signs and symptoms every day. The reason we do that is so that if anything starts to go wrong for them, the healthcare staff can intercede immediately. So this is what we're doing uh, now and the release testing will begin next so that we know when we release someone out into the facility from the facility at the end of their stated term, we can tell the um, people in the local health department, this person is actually positive instead of this person has had exposure. So that's sort of what the plan looks like now. Did you have anything to add to that, Dr. Para? No, I think people should are quite, quite well aware of the fact that if you're fine, you, when you're not in the system, you don't get a test either. It's like you can just walk in and get a test if you're feeling fine. And so I, I, think, I think your approach of, of looking for people who are sick, testing them, get them into the facility, that takes care of the people who have it. And, uh, and uh, once you know that it's there, keeping a very close um, look over the rest of the people to see if any of them get sick and get them into the treatment, that's, um, that meets the needs. You want to, as you said, you just, you want to take care of the well people, not the people who are just, you know, carrying it, feeling fine or not even though they have it. I think the other thing we've done to try to figure out other than our symptom checks, we no longer charge a copay fee with regard to flu-like symptoms. This should 
remove any barrier to the person who's incarcerated from wanting to seek health care on their own, which they can do either by talking to the officer or, or using the health service request process. So they have the ability to do that as well. It's not just the surveillance. And we also changed our electronic health record before we ever had a case of COVID so that we could do analytical surveillance on the back end and see if we have a spike of certain symptoms that tie into COVID, we will triangulate in on that just based upon what's recorded in the health records and in our analytics that we do every day and say, oh, we have a spike in this prison. What is causing that? What can we do? Where do these people live? And start going after that in a different way as well. So we're not just relying on temperature checks and symptoms, uh, although that's good. We also have the ability for the people who are incarcerated to request uh, at no charge. And we also use our health record to, to, to surveil what's going on. Uh, one yeah, and, and your physicians at the, at the institutions look out for the people who are more susceptible or immunocompromised. They, they look at them more carefully to be sure uh, that they don't get this or if they may be tested before anybody else simply because they would be the most susceptible ones. And so I, again, they use your records and you know, and you know who's in your facilities. Uh, Director, I, I want to tell you 40% of our people are living in cells and the people that live in cells, some of them are double, some are single, but those folks in cells are very um, protected because they're not permitted to come out of their cells unless they have their mask on. And they're not really interacting with a lot of other people. And even then they're living in a unit and that unit is a cohort and moves around together. So they would eat and recreate and live together. So it's a lot easier to control in an environment where there's cells. That means 60% of our people live in an environment that is open bay housing. Some of these might be as small as 40 and I know one's as big as 300. So it's around 100 to 125 people in what we're calling a cohort. And what we try to do is get those folks in the cohort to not interact with any other cohort. That's how we try to protect them. And then we take the staff and, and put them in cohorts. They may have three cohorts that they're associated with that are, that are inmate cohorts, but our staff are not all mingling with each other. So these are things that we have layered on over time. I mean, well, we started having people sleep head to foot. That was another way to get literally their mouths farther apart. Sorry. Director, Director, let me ask a, a question um, in regard to the staff and protection of staff. You want to talk a little bit about how you're dealing with uh, the staff? So we have started testing staff, as I stated. <coughs> Why I have to cough now, I'll never tell you. Um, but they have PPE equipment that matches up with the ODH and CDC guidelines. So what we did was we took the guidelines from CDC and ODH and put it in a graph. We have one graph for people that are healthcare professionals and the things that they're doing and also the incarcerated adults that work in the healthcare area with those staff. And then we have another chart for people that are not healthcare professionals and the things that they do and the incarcerated adults that work with them. And it'll say, I'm doing X activity. I would need, uh, okay, I might need a gown, an N95, a shield and goggles. That's like an aerosolizing procedure in medical, right? Or I might just be um, 
a correction officer who is watching a unit. At that point, I, I would need gloves and a surgical mask. So it all varies according to what you're doing and where you're doing it. And it's in a chart. So that was our attempt to utilize our PPE because, you know, we are trying, we're trying to buy it. We're trying to make it and we're also trying to conserve it and use it responsibly. So that's how that plan went. We also set up for any of our hotspot prisons the ability to go to a hotel after work so that you could, um, you know, take a shower and just go home after that if you want to or so that you could check in and sleep the night and not go home. That's not something we mandate. That's something we make available because we want our staff to have the ability to um, make sure their family are safe to make sure that they have what they need to, to change and do things like that. I, I know that Dr. Acton always talks about all heroes don't wear capes. I think heroes might wear um, gray correction officer uniforms, actually. They are coming into a prison where they know good and well there's over 2,000 people that are COVID positive and they're doing their jobs every day and they're amazing. And then we have about 2,000 healthcare staff who have chosen to work in the field of corrections and those folks uh, come in and they care about their patients just like the people who are caring for patients that aren't incarcerated. In our long-term care facility when the CDC came and met with our staff, all of our staff, our correction officers and our healthcare staff, one thing they kept saying over and over was like the rapport between the patients and the people that work there and the caring, they weren't expecting that. But that that's how we operate and they care about their patients just like the patients are cared for out on the streets and they do everything they can to take care of them they're, and they're invested. They're working double shifts back to back. Um, that's why we have to use the National Guard's medics to help us so that we can um, you know, give our people some relief. But we use the National Guard to assist us. We use the Highway Patrol to assist us. We do offer testing. We have set up a system for OSU where they can make a phone call to get fast track to testing and you know various things around PPE. We have teams of incarcerated adults whose job it is to clean surfaces. That's all they do all day. And the high touch points and surfaces so that we can try to make sure it's not passed like that. Um, it's really uh, layering of one thing on another. First we stop unnecessary people coming in. Then we stopped unnecessary movement from prison to prison. Then we stopped unnecessary movement inside the prison. Then we have about 2,000 of our workers telecommuting now so that they aren't mixing with our, our, our prison. They're still doing their job every day and they're working hard, but they're home and they're doing it long distance and they're being creative. Um, we switched from having three meals a day to having brunch. The only reason we did that was so that that's just that much uh, more time to sanitize between different cohorts eating as well as it's more um, a, more ability the more meals the more ability to interact with the more people so less we have two meals now going on um, we basically put breakfast and lunch together and are serving slightly more calories than we were before people are allowed to take food back to their to their unit uh, they don't have to consume it all right there um, so those are the things like that are about just not having as many people interact with as many people. We did do 40 hours of COVID leave so that we, we don't want our staff to have to come in sick or make a decision between a paycheck and um, taking off. We do screen our staff every day and we don't let people in if they don't pass the screening. 
So there's a lot of layers to this, and it's all about either surveillance or prevention or, you know, containing. Uh, well, I want to see if Dr. Acton has any questions. Dr. Acton, do you have any questions at all? No, I, I just um, really want to thank you, uh, Director Annette Chamber-Smith. I've said this before, uh, my colleagues and I around the country talk quite a bit, and uh, the director has been someone that uh, all my peers have looked to. They talk amongst states. Um, I really think the, the plan was an, an amazing plan. We know it's a difficult situation in any congregate setting and so again it's 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 an honor to work with you and we're not trying to over brag you here but i just i think ohioans should know that we've been very fortunate to have someone who is very compassionate about everyone from the staff to the prisoners and i've seen that in her before there was ever covid and um, I've just, in these hard days, I've just seen it in her every day. And Dr. Para, thank you so much as well. No, it was a pleasure for me, honestly, seeing uh, all the, the processes that the director put together, as well as how it's evolved and gotten better and better. As soon as she sees something that would help, she Im implements it. it. It was very impressive. I mean, it, you you want a job in infection control at the hospital? <laughs> I, I just might one day. <laughs> we would love to have you. Wow, I'm impressed. Well, I really do appreciate you guys uh, saying that um, it's not, it's not an easy time. We did have two of our own staff pass away, and that is horrible. Um, the incarcerated adults that passed away, horrible. We don't want to see any of that, but. I don't think we can expect to not see any deaths when we see the same thing happen outside of corrections. But we will dearly miss Officer Dawson and Nurse Reeves, you know? Well, Director, thank you. Thank you very much. And you mentioned uh, Nurse Reeves, um, um, 58 years old, uh, of Blacklick, a licensed practical nurse at Pickaway Correctional, uh, tragically died uh, last Sunday night. Uh, she began working there in 2006, first as a health information tech, uh, before going back to school for her LPN. Uh, she was working to become an RN. Uh, she was most recently working in the pill call area in the dialysis division. Uh, she leaves three daughters uh, and, and grandchildren. So our heart goes out to her family, and we are just very, very sorry for that, that great loss. Uh, director, um, thank you. Doctor, thank you very, very much. Um, the now, Governor, they did ask me to speak about early releases. I think several sure, people were sure. wanting to hear about that. So did you want me to yep, go on? Sure. Abs no, no, absolutely. Anything that, uh, any questions you got? Well, we, we really started talking about this in early March, um, how we might do it, how we could keep safety as well as try to reduce our population. And as you know, under your leadership, we decided to go with a full continuum approach, which involved the courts all the way through to the parole board and your own clemency powers. So there's a lot of different irons in the fire and people being released in different ways from judicial release at the court level or even from um, diversions for that matter at the court level. And then for us, we have, uh, we're reviewing people who are PRC violators 
we are reviewing people who have been continued by the parole board. And we have uh, also gone to the legislature, the CIIC, to enact the early release clause that's in Ohio law. And then you yourself have done some commutations, clemencies. Um, all of this tied together, our population has decreased by 1,379 people since March 24th. So I think sometimes people get wrapped up into looking at one process or another and fail to realize the totality of the entire continuum has had that effect on our prisons. And what that's allowed us to do is go into the prisons and make people uh, the ability to live farther apart and have more physical plant space, which is it's a nicer way to live, period. But it's also a part of our trying to fight the spread of COVID. We can't change our physical plant and that make cells, but we can try to have people live farther apart. So we've used this space that's been created by the people who are no longer incarcerated to, and we've used non-traditional housing like tents and gyms and classrooms and chapels, just simply to have more space between people and to have different size cohorts. We continue to do rolling early releases. So those are Today, I have 91 days left. Tomorrow, I only have 90. Uh, therefore, I become eligible tomorrow. So we are continually uh, doing that, as well as we've reviewed the list of um, people over a certain age and applied the criteria, which you'll be getting presented with another list of people that we think would be good bets to leave. Now, naturally, we're trying to do all this in a way that doesn't result in what we've seen in some other places, which people leave and either reoffend immediately or kill someone. I mean, that's the worst case scenario. We don't want that. So we do want to have a reduction. We want to do it safely. This is the method Ohio has chosen. And this is how much, uh, how many people we've been able to impact. Director, thank you very much. Doctor, we appreciate uh, your time, both of you. Okay, it's National Employees Week for Corrections People next week, and it's also Nurses Month. So um, I gave you a little video of our staff, and I'd just like to say you guys are doing great work, and I appreciate you. All right, we look forward to the video. Thank all those who work uh, every day in our Ohio prisons. Dr. Acton. Thank you, Governor. Good afternoon, everyone. I just, again, I just want to say um, it, it's very humbling uh, to hear the director and the doctor speak. I think in something as overwhelming as coronavirus, it's very easy to think that there's something to blame in this. And, and then when I see that video and I, I see the people, again, it's us. It's what I said yesterday. We are the workers. We are working in the prison. We are the people staying at home. We are the nurses. It's us and the people who are going out of their way, um, like Mr. Dawson and Nurse Reeves. Um, again, people are truly being heroes. And 
um, this is a hard thing. It's the virus. It's not any person. It's the virus that we're all fighting together. So thank you. Uh, our data, Eric. Um, so we do have today in Ohio 18,027 cases. This is an increase of 724 cases from yesterday. Um, and we are, unfortunately, approaching 1,000 deaths. We're now at 975 deaths in Ohio. I, I do want to say, Ohio, you know, for our population size, when we look at our rates of deaths compared to many other countries and, and to many other states, uh, the things that you have done to help protect each other have really helped us, but it still hurts to see each and every one of these. I, uh, next slide, Eric. Um, at this point, we have tested 13, 133,000, sir, uh, over that in Ohio. Um, we are still seeing a slightly higher increase in sick patients. Again, it's our sicker patients who are being tested or in high-risk situations. It's skewing slightly more male at this point. Um, our hospitalizations, 20% uh, of our cases require hospitalization, and 6% are in the ICU. Um, and, and other than that, our numbers look about the same. Trends-wise, Eric, we are now looking, um, again, at cases ticking up. Um, and our deaths today are a little bit on the down side. Of that, we did see a spike yesterday, but again, a spike was due, again, to a clump of data that was also processed, so we have to take that in context. Um, hospitalizations, right now, um, I've seen a couple days of ticking up on hospitalizations, uh, slightly high on ICUs. I think even five days trend-wise, it's really hard to see any one day's data. We really need to start looking, I think, sir, maybe over even longer trends to get a sense of where this is. It still feels very plateau-y to me. And uh, that would be um, a summary of our data. Um, and uh, I think I'll turn it back to you, Governor, for questions. Good. Well, we'll have questions. Uh, today will be the last day that we have uh, ben Garberic uh, from ABC6 with us. And so Ben uh, and his wife are moving back to Chicago, and we wish them all, all the best. So I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, one question, Governor, we've been getting from some uh, folks who are heading back to work potentially as early as tomorrow, uh, people who are in dental offices, uh, veterinary uh, clinics. You've mentioned the lack of PPE. Uh, they would also need PPE to go back to work, and there's been some shortages. So at this point, is there enough PPE for some of those people to safely go back to work at this point? Well, of course, the PPE is different. Someone going into an office, and I'll let Dr. Acton get, I'll have a lifeline over here with her, and she can answer it. But um, somebody goes to an office, they just need something to cover to go in and cover their face. If they're actually in the office and by themselves, they can take this off. Um, so, you know, they can make it themselves. They can grab something and put it over there. Obviously, someone who is working in a dent dentist office uh, will have to wear whatever is appropriate uh, for that, that individual. Now, I know that uh, some of the dentists who are very kind enough to uh, contribute to the stockpile when we were fearing the, the huge 
the huge uh, rush. Um, you know, some of them have asked to get that back. Uh, that's a, that's a work in progress. Uh, that's up up to the local EMS. Um, Dr. Acton, you want to add anything to that? My my knowledge is exhausted at this point. I think so. Yeah. Thank you, Governor and Ben. We're really gonna miss you. Thank you so much for doing such a good job for Columbus and all your reporting. I'm looking at him on the screen here. Uh, I I think it's really important that we are slowly returning in our areas of dentistry, vet, and hospitals. If a practice does not have the appropriate gear, they are not going to move forward. So definitely talk to your provider and make sure. I mean, I think we it's an arbitrary line in the, sun, the sand a day, May 1st, or any day we pick. We know we're going to be fighting this virus for a long time. And each practice um, is going to have to assess whether they have all the things they need uh, to fully open. And if not, of course, you know, professionals will be professionals and, and um, be, be straightforward with their patients about what they can do. Um, you know, a, a lot of the providers do have the necessary equipment and I know they're doing everything they can in their power. Um, our supply chains are what they are. So um, definitely work as a patient with your provider and um, you would expect them to have the right gear to do their procedures. And Ben, ben you know, as, as Dr. Atkins said, the supply chains are a mess. Uh, and so it certainly is possible that there's a dentist out there or someone who does not have those, those supplies. And, you know, we're trying to do what we can. Uh, and I know that in the private sector, everyone is trying to do what they can to get the PPE that they, that they need. But it's... It, it is certainly, I'm sure, a work, work in progress. Thank you for the kind words as well. Hello, Ben Schwartz with WCPO. Um, Governor DeWine, I want to kind of re-ask the same thing I asked you yesterday. Um, I appreciate the answer that all three of you gave about um, Ohioans, some Ohioans, ignoring uh, social distance guidelines. What I really wanted to hear is if you have a message for Ohioans who are taking those guidelines seriously but see others not, and if that's reason for them to worry or if there's anything they should do when they do see that. It, 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 ben, it certainly is, and uh, it was a good question yesterday, um, good question today. Um, I kind of missed, missed the question, uh, but it, look, it, it there's two the best way to protect each other is the distance and again when people you know don't practice the distancing uh, the problem is it's not just them they they are endangering other people and it may not just be the person that they're you know you, you may have two 20 year olds and uh, they're very they're very very close uh, and one is is carrying the COVID virus, doesn't know it, uh, transmits it to to the other 20-year-old, and maybe that's okay. Maybe they, neither one gets very sick, but then the 20-year-old goes home uh, and the mom gets sick or the grandmother gets sick. So, yeah, when people are not continuing to practice social distancing, it is a problem, and so if – you're practicing social distancing and you're seeing somebody over there who's not practicing social distancing distancing uh yes it is it is a concern and a, and, and a problem so i don't know does that 
Does that answer the question or I? Yeah, yeah, much better. Thank you very much. That then. Uh, good afternoon, Governor. A uh, question for Dr. Acton, if I may. Good afternoon, Director. Um, nursing homes accounted for three-fourths, or 2,200, of all cases reported in the past week. Cases among the general public amounted to less than 700, or 23 percent. While considering the lack of widespread testing, what does that say about the virus trend and risk among the general public? You know, I don't think we can say a lot about the general trend or prevalence in the public that hasn't been tested. That's one of the reasons we are so committed to making sure that we can do a prevalence study. Um, what we do know is about the nursing homes, and you see it all over the country, you know, congregate living situations, whether they be in nursing homes, in um, residential treatment centers, in homeless shelters, as we just learned in prisons, are higher risk situations. Um, we have been working tirelessly. We have the CDC on site helping us as well in working on the best protocols for nursing homes at the local level. Our local health departments and our hospitals have made new partnerships to help nursing homes. We have strike teams we have developed at the state level. And we test in nursing homes now. And with increased testing, that's an increased focus for us. We also want to think about the staff. We treat the staff in nursing homes very similarly as we do to the staff in hospitals. So we are not surprised that we see um, in a higher risk population and in a congregate living situation the spread. Uh, just last night, I was on the phone with my peers in the surrounding states and comparing some of our numbers, including, as you ran in the dispatch today, about the deaths in nursing home using our new data. Um, we were slightly lower than what I was hearing in other states. I think, um, you know, we're doing everything we can to provide the very best guidance to help nursing homes. But we really can't say a lot about the general population yet until we can get a better idea, better testing, and better prevalence study. Thank you. You and I were talking this morning. We would yeah. expect, uh, we, if a shipment comes in this weekend, we would expect to be able to start next week sometime yeah. more general testing in the population. Yeah, let me just say for yeah. a moment, um, if I could, we're, we're going to talk more, I believe, tomorrow. I was going to give, I have some slides and things to show about our, our testing, how we tier it. And one of the things we've done is created, with scarce resources, Randy, guidance for the whole state. And that guidance evolves as we have more testing, we expand out greater. And it has evolved as we've understood the disease, as everything has. And so we're still doing high risk, so nursing homes, hospitals, symptomatic people, staff, and that, that's layering out. So we're going to talk a lot more about our ideas of testing in nursing homes um, and how we, how we do that to maximize the tests we have. And we'll be talking about that more tomorrow. And in addition to that, you know, as we've always said, Governor, we do frontline responders as well, um, anyone on the front lines. Um, and then we're doing some asymptomatic in these high-risk areas. As you heard in prisons, 
Um, and we've learned, and in nursing homes, you know, we haven't done our nursing homes the way we've done, you know, a, a whole prison or a whole nursing home yet, but even in the nursing homes where we've tested quite a bit, that asymptomatic is huge. So the whole point of testing, it's a point in time. So even in the prison, what the doctor was trying to say is, I can test in a prison, we're seeing up to 80 to 90% asymptomatic. You have to repeat that testing and watch as people go from asymptomatic to symptomatic or not. And so even a one point in time testing doesn't tell you all the information. The reason you'd wanna do that, if the prevalence was low, you could cohort people and separate out the at-risk people from the not. But our asymptomatic rates are so high that you really almost have to treat everyone as if they're potentially positive and then and do your planning around that because the spread within congregate settings, and this is across the country, is so great. So, so um, we're doing more focused testing, but um, not that broad. Yeah, we'll have more tomorrow or Monday on that. I, I wonder also, though, if you could talk about, because Randy was talking about the general population, Yeah, uh, we are going to start fairly soon to go out and sample the general population. Yes, and that's our, you know, that's what I spoke of yesterday, Randy, and we'll talk more about it, but those are our prevalence studies. They're studies based on with working with the World Health Organization. It's the type of study you saw New York City do recently where they got some of their first prevalence numbers. And, you know, we have a team of researchers uh, led by a group at OSU, but using faculty across the state. And it will actually go out into our communities. Um, we'll begin, it's called a 30 by 30 prevalence study. Um, you start with a basis of a thousand tests and we're going to be doing hopefully both the um, antibody testing serologically. We're also going to be taking blood and doing a, a type of antibody testing to test the accuracy of the, the quick assays. Um, as you know, the antibody testing has had various levels of accuracy so far in the data. So we're actually going to use a blood test, which is unique about Ohio. We're going to actually test the accuracy of the antibody tests. And also that type of antibody we're doing that's um, looking at neutralizing antibodies. It's a lot of geeky science, which I love getting into, but for, for viewers at home, you know, it's the same thing we're testing in hospitals on people who have recovered and are donating their antibodies for convalescent plasma. So we're going to be doing that study starting Monday. Um, it takes about two weeks to do another week to analyze the data. In addition to some surveys of symptoms, we're also, Randy, measuring other things now. We're looking through emergency room data and our, our existing surveillance on influenza-like illnesses, we're looking at deaths that are excess deaths. That at this time last year, what was our death rates? What are excess deaths? So there are a number of things we're looking in the future at positivity rates of tests. So there's a lot of data um, that my peers and I are starting to look at as ways to get deeper and deeper into our understanding of this disease. Thank you. Kevin Landers, WBNS 10 TV. My question is for the governor. Uh, governor, there are some retail stores, including here in Columbus, uh, that plan to open tomorrow in defiance of your order. What do you say to those businesses um, that are planning on doing that? You know, the date um, was picked for retail stores was May 12th. 
Uh, and what went into that consideration, it's, I guess, to some extent, you know, it could have been the 11th, it could have been another date. But we're trying to phase these things in, and we're trying to continue to buy some time um, so that this spread does not, we don't have the, the curve going straight up again. So, um, you know, we would say that was a mistake, um, and they should not do that. Um, we have in May, we've set a parameters, we've set the dates uh, to move forward in May in, in regard to retail. Uh, so, you know, we would hope uh, certainly that people will follow the law. Uh, I think what retail stores, I've talked to uh, several uh, today, and uh, look, they're getting ready, they're planning, they're looking at what they have to do to be able to accommodate customers, to be able to keep their employees safe, to be able to keep the public safe when they come in. We would hope that in the next 12 days that that's, you know, that's what they're focusing on. Uh, and when the date comes that they can open up. Uh, look, I, I fully understand everyone's anxious to get moving again, but this is a balance. This is, we are, we are trying to open up as fast as we can, but at the same time, protect the public. That's why we have specific protocols that have to be put into place. And it's also why we are layering this out. We're not just opening everything up uh, at, at one time. So uh, that would be a mistake, and I certainly would hope they, they would follow um, the rule of law. Thank you. Jim Province with the Blade with a question for Dr. Acton. Hello, Director. Um, with the recent studies, showing that the promising results for, and I'm going to try to pronounce this, remdesivir, uh, the, the flu vaccine, um, or the, the flu medication. Is this available in Ohio now? Do we have a stockpile of this drug if, we, if it is approved? And in your opinion, under what circumstances should it be used? So I've been very hopeful. I think I've mentioned in past uh, talks that having an antiviral that is already in existence and on the market, like remdesivir, and I have trouble saying it too, so don't, don't feel bad too many consonants in that. And, and, um, but that would be a wonderful boon for us. You know, if you think about Tamiflu, which is what a lot of folks, if they get a bad flu, and interestingly, flu often, we don't always do the flu test. The flu test is just like the coronavirus test, the very annoying swab in your nose. And sometimes clinicians will just know from your symptoms and give you an antiviral. What that does is help lessen your symptoms um, yourself, but it also decreases the time you're infectious and spread it to others. Um, I think this is promising. You know, Dr. Fauci, similar to me, is going to always speak in cautious terms because we really, you know, we don't want to overspeak the science. And, and so I'm hopeful. And I do think, especially for those we've seen with this disease, people can tank. I mean, they can just be going along that first week and then something happens. And the overwhelming inflammation that is associated with the disease, we're seeing now beyond lung disease, we're seeing strokes, we're seeing effects all over the body. I think having something like this in our arsenal would be wonderful, especially for the sickest. Now, of course, like everything else we've seen, 
Um, you worry about a run on these drugs. Um, you worry about the supply chain of all drugs. We've seen supply chain issues with albuterol and penicillin. And so we do not have a stockpile, at least not one that I am aware of. It's not a drug that's been stockpiled. Um, and so I think we would really look um, uh, to guidance from the federal government on really helping modulate this because it's really, really important we do this well anytime something like this might become scarce. Adrian Robbins, NBC4, and my question's for Dr. Acton. Um, you've said, obviously, our numbers do lag behind a little bit, and with testing not be being fully ramped up until May, are there other indicators that you'll be looking at over the next few weeks to make sure that we're not going down the wrong path and we're not going to see a large spike that we can't do anything about ultimately at the end of May when we do have the testing to, to spot it? Agent, absolutely. Our ability to do this and sort of watch and learn from it is so important. And it's not, again, just us. This is the CDC. This is every state in this country and every country in this world is learning together and trying to find what I talked about yesterday, that sweet spot of being able to maximize what we can do while also minimize um, the spread of the virus. And so numbers we will be looking at are some that we always have, the cases and the case numbers. And of course, with increased testing, you're going to see more cases. So you have to look for trends. And another number that's very helpful that we're looking at now is called a positivity rate. And that lets you look at the amount of positive tests versus all the tests you did and the tests that were negative. And sometimes that will help you correct for the fact that you're just testing more. So positivity rates will be a very important number. But we have all sorts of things we're watching. We're watching hospitalizations, ICU for COVID specific. We're looking for influenza-like illnesses through another mechanism, through ED visits, and maybe even people who weren't hospitalized. ICU visits. Um, we're looking at all sorts of aspects of this disease. We're looking at deaths. Um, we're analyzing deaths a little differently. Um, we're asking for different reporting from coroners um, because we know that people might die. It might be put on their death certificate stroke, but we don't know if they've been tested for COVID. Um, and so there's a series of about 20 different measures um, that we've been building the ability to track, and that's those will all be things we watch, and I'll be reporting those, you know, with you as we know them again uh, to the public and putting them on our website. Thank you. Good afternoon, Governor. My name is Benito Lucio. I am uh, uh, from Ohio Latino TV, and I'm also retired from as the Migrant Agricultural Ombudsman Monitor Advocate for the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services. My question are, are to you, uh, for you, Governor, uh, in regards to the, our immigrant and migrant worker workforce, both legal and undocumented. Many are very limited in what government resources they could utilize during this pandemic. And most recently, we're even excluded from the stimulus, the mixed family group, meaning one spouse being an American citizen and the other not having a social security number, in most cases having a federal tax ID number. Have you considered a task force to look at this uh, workforce population and what can be done to help them through this difficult time? And also for the migrant worker population that comes from Texas and Florida to support Ohio's agriculture, 
What preparations is being done to make sure Ohio's ag employers will have the necessary workforce for this season? During my time at ODJFS, I advocated for an incentive for workers to come to Ohio uh, as an example, gas assistance. And finally, a good percentage of our workforce from the immigrant and migrant worker force are undocumented and are a vital workforce in filling many voids in employment, such as in agriculture, service sector, construction, food processing, hotels, etc. Would you advocate for immigration reform now to help bring these, this workforce out of the shadows and recognize the contribution of this workforce to our state as well as our country? Well, I, I spent 20 years in Congress um, de dealing with immigration, among other other things. Uh, so I'm going to leave that part of the question to uh, Senator Portman, Senator Brown, and our our Ohio congressional delegation. But something that I think uh, is within our jurisdiction uh, is is the health of people uh, who are in the state of Ohio, including this this population. Um, uh, the idea of a task force uh, certainly makes sense, but I want to ask Dr. Acton um, if she can tell us uh, if there's anything in particular uh, focus of the health department in regard to this, this population. Uh, certainly would include uh, migrant workers who, who come here seasonally uh, who are involved in, in, in agriculture. I just want to say, Governor, that I'm very proud of um, many of our local health departments because, of course, most public health is in communities and on the ground, um, are really working hard to address all populations, especially those who might fall between the cracks, and certainly migrant workers. Um, their health needs have, have um, been well documented and, and are really something that our communities absolutely need. Uh, to take extra measures to do. Um, we, I am not aware of something that is happening um, at the state level on this issue, but I'm going to look into it now and find out for you because I, I couldn't agree more. Um, we do have people here um, uh, to, to help us in Ohio, and we, we want to make sure that they're not suffering disproportionately. So um, I'll look into that for you. Yeah, I think that is an excellent question, and I will do the same. I've written that. Yeah written that that down uh, you know that the health of every person who is in Ohio uh, is is significant um, and certainly when we have a virus um, you know one person's health obviously impacts other people's health so I we will take we will, both dr. Acton and I will take a look at that thank you for the question Good afternoon, this is Karen Johnson with WLWT in Cincinnati. And my question is really from the business community. Why would office workers who are already socially distanced in a secure environment now be required to wear masks when people in the stores, random people in the stores, it's just a recommendation? We've said, um that an office worker who is coming to work, who's going to go into their office, should wear it as they're going in with other people. When they get in the office, they're sitting there. They certainly can can take that can take that off. Um, you know, that's we we made that mean that very clear. Uh, I, I want to go back a little bit on the process, and, and you know, one of the things that I have done um, all the time I was 
attorney general all the time I've been governor is put together working groups to look at different things uh, we try to bring in people who really understand um, the whatever the issue is I've done I've done it in foster care I've done it in a number of different things uh, we put a working group together uh, led by Frank Sullivan but it was not only bigger companies it was mid-sized companies smaller companies uh, and we put them with with experts in health and they came back with this recommendation. Uh, this is the recommendation they came back, uh, that office workers uh, would wear a mask in. Uh, and if they're working close together, they would continue to, to wear a mask. Uh, we think it is, it is a good uh, recommendation. Uh, we adopted it. And, uh, you know, again, it, as I said, it came from the business community. It came from people who run offices. And they came up with, with, this, with this best practices. Uh, as far as the uh, people in, in retail, uh, the recommendation was the same, uh, that if you work in retail, uh, you, sh you, should, you should wear uh, the mask. Uh, as far as people who are uh, customers, uh, it's highly recommended uh, that, they, that they wear a mask. Uh, but as we've talked about the last two days, um, you know, it was clear there were some Ohioans who, who were frankly very offended by that. Uh, but we continue to encourage them, uh, encourage everyone else who goes into retail to, to, to wear a facial, a facial covering. So if we do all this, um, you know, we're going to go a long way to protect each other. And the goal here is to do two things at once, and we're going to see if we can do it. Uh, but I think we can, uh, and that is to get Ohio back to work at the same time, uh, continue to provide good protection uh, for Ohioans who, who are in the workplace and who live in, in every community. Recommendation, not a requirement for the workplace. Uh, hi. I just wanted to a answer the gentleman's earlier question. My phone has gone off from my team, and we do have our, our uh, minority task force that is chaired by uh, Directors Ursel McElroy and also um, Director Alicia Nelson, and they both texted me to let me know that it is migrant workers are in a part of the group and the work they're doing, and I believe they're presenting to you very soon. So they'll be. And we, we will report back. So that's good to know. And we will report back to everyone exactly uh, what they're doing and what, what, what we're doing. So thank you. Jake Zuckerman from the Ohio Capital Journal. We know that Marion and Pickaway Correctional Institutions are in, are in very bad shape. Over 75% of the inmates are infected, but about five or so other prisons are starting to show increasing case counts. Is there any reason to believe that those prisons won't end up in as bad a shape as Marion and Pickaway? Uh, that's more a medical question, uh, but what's been explained to me uh, is that once um, the virus gets into a prison um, that has the congregate living, uh, it is very, very difficult. We've seen this despite all the best practices and the good measures uh, in several of our prisons uh, that you mentioned, um, Pickaway Marion, uh, that, you know, it's very difficult to stop it from spreading. Uh, in the prisons that are higher, the higher security, uh, where the prisoners are, are in cells, uh, that obviously is much easier to, to control that. I don't know, Dr. Acton, if you want to add anything to that. But that's good. 
<laughs> so it's very difficult. It's very difficult, and uh, you know we've we've seen how difficult it is in in the prisons where his it has entered. Um, and you know when when we have uh, you know people who go in and out of the prison, even though we've restricted visitors, even though we've restricted a, a lot of things, but obviously people who who work there uh, go in and out, and they go back in, into the into the community. Now, uh, as the director said, one of the things that we have offered. Um, in particularly the, the prisons that uh, that have so much of the virus, uh, we've offered people the opportunity to stay in a motel, uh, which will be is paid for by the state. And some have some have taken that up. It sounds like there's there's some suffering to come in those institutions. I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. I'm it, to be clear, it sounds like there's some suffering to come in those institutions. Uh, yeah, I still didn't hear it. Did you hear? I said, to be clear, it sounds like there's some suffering to come in those institutions. I might. There, we'll have to see. I mean, we can't we can't predict. Ohio Public Radio and Television State House News Bureau. A question for Dr. Acton: uh, When it comes to opening daycares and 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 the closures of schools, I know a lot's been made about how children can pass on the virus. Are we learning anything more about how, in, I don't know what the word would be, but how infectious children can be and, and the rate of transmission from kids to adults? Right, the, the latest data that I've seen shows that it is really just as infectious with children as it is with adults. We know that children are less likely to um, die from this virus unless, of course, they have a pre-existing health condition or some, something else that makes them vulnerable, perhaps um, cancer or something like that. But every now and then, I mean, my son just sent me a photo of a, a young woman who was at, you know, Rainbow Babies Hospital, and she had been governor sitting there watching us, went through her treatment and was very, very sick and watched our shows each day to get through it and had sent her picture. Um, to say thank you, and I, I just know that there are kids sick, but they're not. We're not seeing them um, in the numbers that we're seeing adults um, that are sick. So they are passing it on, um, and we see that it can be deadly or certainly cause a lot of suffering in any age group. But not. It is more skewed um, in terms of the worst outcomes to older older adults, but just as infectious. Giamatti. Giamatti from WHIO-TV in Dayton. Governor, this is a question for you. Tomorrow, if I remember correctly, the stay-at-home order expires at 11.59 p.m. Do you intend on letting it expire, uh, letting it expire to extend it, to modify it? What's in the plan? A stay-at-home order will, will be extended with the exceptions uh, when Retail opens up. That certainly will be a, a major exception for that. It certainly is an exception uh, just in a few days when, when manufacturing and other companies are, are allowed to start back, those that have already started. So um, it will be extended. Um, again, it's important as we try to go back to work and as we go back to work and get this economy moving and get more people working uh, that we do it carefully. Uh, and what all of us can do, whether we're working or not working, what we do impacts our ability to safely 
uh, go back to work and get our economy moving. Uh, and we, so um, the decision has been made. I've made the decision to have the stay-at-home order uh, still, still in effect. Uh, but, uh, you know, the exceptions, Jim, that were written into the uh, original order continue. People certainly can go to the grocery store. Um, you know, they, they, they can uh, uh, meet with their own family um, at home. Um, you know, they can take walks. They can do a, a number of different things. Uh, the social distancing is really, is really the key uh, to, to about everything. Uh, and people just keeping that, keeping that distance. Uh, and that's what we need to continue to do uh, as we move to get back to work. Thank you, Governor. Hello, this is Laura from Cleveland.com. Just a question for the governor really quick. What is your um, timeline for announcing state cuts to the public? Uh, we'll be doing that very soon. Uh, had discussions last night, had discussions today. We're consulting with this, the General Assembly. General Assembly, uh, you know, obviously plays a, a significant role in all this discussion because what Cuts we make now are important, but also uh, that will set the tone uh, for where we go from here. And being able to make make the cuts now, um, you know, will help us as as we go into the future. So coming very shortly. But again, we're working with the state legislature um, uh, of both parties, and we're going to continue to do that. Hi, Governor. It's uh, Andrew Welsh Huggins with the Associated Press. Um, back to the prisons. Um, I've heard from many inmates um, and COs as well who paint a different picture of the situation as it developed early on in terms of the director was talking about the planning. We've, we've heard about inmates feeling like it was being treated as a security risk, not a health issue. Uh, we've heard about shortages of sanitation, uh, soap, and hygiene things from the beginning. And we've also heard from COs uh, very consistently that they felt like they they were put in an untenable situation and never had enough PPE and still don't. Um, so I'm I'm wondering what are your concerns that the prison system really was uh, prepared for something like this, and what are your concerns that it's able to handle uh, the outbreak right now? You heard uh, directly from the director. Uh, you heard from the doctor. Um, we put together a, a working group uh, fairly early on in this uh, with former director uh, Reggie Wilkinson, assistant director Tom Stickrath, uh, and others who understand prisons, who, who, who have spent decades in working in prisons. And so that group has been there to, to help and to advise uh, the director. We pulled in health people. Um, so, you know, I feel that the prisons are being well run. Um, there has always been a PPE issue statewide. Uh, we've, we've said that. Uh, we've said that for weeks. Uh, but if you listen to what the director said, and, you know, this is where we are today, um, you know, we're following the guidelines of the PPE and what everybody should have in every appropriate position. Uh, sometimes there is not just with, uh, there's, a, there's a confusion, I think, a little bit in among the general public. Sometimes I'm confused. 
uh, about uh, the mask, the N95 mask, uh, that are only appropriate in, in, certain, in certain cases. But what the director was talking about, she has a list, and this is from the CDC, this is from the health officials. In this type of work, you should have this PPE. Um, prison is following that, and they, they have the adequate um, equipment there today. Now, could they have been short early on? That's something that, you know, I will have to check with the director. I can only say that it's been short uh, everywhere in the state of Ohio on, on, on PPE. But with the last deliveries that have been made, uh, you know, we feel that we have not only enough there, but we have a 90-day a, a, a um, backup uh, for what we need in the prisons. Thank you. Hi there, Governor. Ori Givens from Spectrum News One. I'm wondering if you would consider, we have viewers asking about penalty weeks and unemployment. Other states like California are providing workarounds so that people who have penalty weeks can access the PUA system. Would you consider an executive order or working with the legislator to create pathways for people that have those penalty weeks to access these unemployment benefits that they're currently not getting? Let me check on it. Let me, let me see what Take a look at this, and we'll get back to you. This is Jackie Borchardt from the Cincinnati Inquirer, and I'm your last question today. I've heard from several small business owners who have looked at the guidelines you put out this week and say, hey, I can follow those, but I'm not retail, and I'm not an office or manufacturer. Why did you decide in this opening to go with categories of businesses instead of, say, just putting out criteria rules that they need to follow and allowing the businesses who can open to open? Well, I thought really we did. I thought we put out guidelines and basically said if, if you come under this category, you can open. Um, you know, w we do have exceptions, um, as you know, uh, in regard to hair, in regard to uh, salons, uh, and we're working on that and we hope to come out with, um, you know, industry-specific uh, best practices uh, for those those as well, but we have broad categories, um, and we think you know everybody in those categories is covered. Maybe I didn't quite understand the question. Who 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 are we missing? Uh, they're lumped in with personal services like hair salons. However, they can very easily do a contactless uh, transaction. This is what the, the group came back with, um, but we certainly um, know that some groups have been missed, and we're going to we'll take a look at those, and we will be. Well, as April turns to May, high school sports teams would normally be gearing up for the end of their seasons. I don't have to remind any athlete about that. Uh, particularly hard for seniors, some of whom are wrapping up their sports career. Uh, any out of the year, there'd be senior nights, playoff games, district meets. And I wanted to share uh, today one school uh, that found a unique way to recognize their seniors. Perry High School, home of the Perry Pirates in Lake County, is still having a senior night. They have hung posters of their track, baseball, softball seniors, and are inviting the community to drive by the school and fields tonight. The softball team has taken... Uh, one step further, they hung their senior jerseys on the field and painted their numbers on the field so that, in a sense, 
their seniors could still take the field one last time. Congratulations to the Prairie High School athletes. Thank you to the coaches, schools, families across Ohio who are finding ways to honor their student athletes this season. Um, that's it for today. We will see you all tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Thank you.